So it's just like, okay, let's just have a real talk, real talk, uh, no censorship. Welcome to this edition of the Boiling Frogs Post Roundtable. In San Francisco, I'm Peter B. Collins, and I host the Peter B. Collins podcast and the Processing Distortion podcast that's available at BoilingFrogsPost.com. Deep in the heart of Texas, Guillermo Jimenez joins us once again. He runs Demanufacturing Consent and the TracesOfReality.com blog. Guillermo, good to see you. Good to see you too, Peter. And joining us from the eye-opener post in Japan, we have James Corbett of CorbettReport.com and the eye-opener video series here at Boiling Frogs Post. Good to be here, Peter. Thanks. And the good-looking member of our panel, our publisher, and of course the author of Classified Woman, Sibel Edmonds. Hello, Sibel. Hello, everyone. It's been a while since we've been able to convene and quite a bit has been happening in Ukraine, and we'll start there. I also, during this conversation, want to learn more about the situation in Turkey, and Sibel is certainly very well positioned to uh, advance some of our knowledge about that. But as we look at events in Ukraine, the vote in Crimea, the posturing of both sides, uh, the place I would like to start is trying to separate any kind of reality from the psychological operations of both sides. We start with the U.S. and NATO, which was in a protracted uh, effort to seduce Kiev into a Eurocentric relationship. Most people characterize that as primarily trade issues, but there's a lot of security uh, that went with that package. That is what many people believe caused Yanukovych <clears throat> to tilt eastward to Moscow. And, of course, there are still many questions about who the protesters were in the Maidan Square, who the snipers were uh, in some of the uh, uh, culminating events. This, of course, occurred during the final week of Putin's Olympics in Sochi, <laughs> which uh, presented some interesting contrasts and distractions. But we also know that the U.S. spent at least $5 billion on so-called democracy-building projects in Ukraine uh, that were aimed at destabilizing a democratic government. Uh, corrupt, yes, but uh, democratic, I think most people would widely acknowledge. And now, similar to the way the U.S. pivoted after the military coup in Egypt last year and said that that coup put Egypt on a path to democracy, the U.S. now maintains the legitimacy of the self-appointed government in Kiev against the challenges from Moscow about its very legitimacy. So those are just a few of the observations I have to open this discussion. And uh, I'm going to pick on James next. Uh, he, he didn't know this was coming. But James, uh, give us your thoughts and your perspectives on the events as you've seen them from your post. Well, I guess what strikes me first and foremost is the hypocrisy at every single stage of this uh, this conflict so far. The hypocrisy coming, of course, from people like John Kerry. We're not in the 19th century. You can't invade a country on trumped-up pretexts. But I think the hypocrisy extends to pretty much everything that we've seen so far. 
wh- whether you look at, uh, for example, the the protest over the uh, the Crimean re- referendum. Oh, you can't you can't have a referendum like that. Uh, that that's against the Ukrainian constitution, as if the coup that happened in, with the Euromaidan was uh, itself not in violation of the Ukrainian constitution and an overthrow of a democratically elected government. Um, the hypocrisy that comes from NATO preaching to Russia, you have to stop all of your posturing, your military posturing on, on the Russian side of the border there. Meanwhile, of course, Ukraine and, and uh, NATO are now con- jointly conducting military exercises and the like. So uh, again, the hypocrisy um, striking one more time. And uh, it, it, it continues to go off the char- charts. And that, I think, rankles um, anyone who is at even halfway paying attention to what's going on. I mean, the, 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 the propaganda that we're seeing now is ratcheted up to a level that I haven't seen in years and years. Um, I imagine it was like this back during the original Cold War. And, uh, and I think we're at the exact same level today. And again, that's not really surprising for regular li- listeners of uh, Boiling Frog's post, but just the, the, the blatant nature of it. I mean, just scrolling through the, the news feed today, I was looking for stories about Ukraine, and every single one of them are from the Ukrainian NATO perspective, not from the Crimean Russian perspective at all. It, 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 it's every single one of them treats it like some some sort of foreign alien entity that uh, that that cannot be reasoned with cannot be understood has no no uh, sense of reason behind what they do and i think that the danger of this is is twofold because of course first of all there are the people who will simply buy this who will buy this propaganda and what's going on right now and i of course we've seen that culturally happening on every single level that uh, that now Putin is being cast as some sort of demon from from hell or something and uh, people are just sleepwalking into it the other problem is of course this is kind of a two quoque logical fallacy it's well the other guys are doing it so it's okay if we do it and i think we shouldn't fall into that trap um, that that it's one side or another, or we should be on the Russian side as opposed to the NATO side. I think what we are seeing is basically two powers carving out their, uh, carving out a section of the of a country for their own geopolitical purposes. And we would be naive to think that this doesn't that that Putin or NATO are not interested in this for their own economic and geopolitical reasons, rather than for the good of the Ukrainian people or the people of Crimea or what have you. So I'm I'm wary of the number of pitfalls that come from this story. So I I'd be interested to turn it over to Guillermo to get his take on on that and whether or not he thinks that this is again some 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 sort of trap that we're being forced into. Whether it's a pincher movement, you have to choose one side or the other. Yeah, you know, I'd agree with that sentiment. In fact, that's that's what struck me most about uh, this the sort of stuff we've seen in the media so far. Uh, you touched on it, Peter touched on it, this, this sort of psyop, whatever you want to call it, propaganda war. Uh, and the idea, and in fact, James, you actually, I think you touched on this uh, in, a, in a recent podcast, uh, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed because it's it's exactly the way I felt, that the, the enemy of my enemy is not necessarily my friend. And the way this has been framed in the media thus far uh, I, I think I've said this once before, but I, I really do feel like it's like this. It's it's, mo- it's something like a, like a multiple choice test, and one with only two answers. It's either A or B. It's either you're either with you know the U.S. Uh, uh, and NATO, or you're with uh, the Russians. In other words, if you uh, uh, point out uh, the fact that uh, this is in some way, uh, in many ways, really uh, been orchestrated by the U.S. and NATO, what's happening in the Ukraine, then you are then by extension a, a Russian apologist, you're a Putin apologist, and so forth. And so that's the way it's been framed in most of the media. 
And up until recently, it was most of the media across the board, whether mainstream or alternative or, you know, pseudo alternative or whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's it's been like that. Uh, uh, it's been that sort of dichotomy, that false dichotomy uh, throughout. And that's what really struck me the most about it. Um, that's what I kind of been focusing on is the way it's been framed in the media so, uh, so far. Um, and that's something else that you pointed out that I felt was worth uh, echoing in regards to media as well. Uh, the way uh, Russia is painted in this, if they're mentioned at all, right? If the perspective is at, is at all brought up, it's in a sort of, uh, as you say, uh, in a way that this is this other this other entity, uh, whatever it is, uh, cannot be reasoned with, cannot be talked to, and and this is a classic uh, dehumanization tactic uh, when painting your enemy or or uh, how should I put this? When framing an enemy, it's important to do this, of course, in the minds of the public. Otherwise. Well, they wouldn't be your enemy if they could if you'd saw them in the same way as as relatable as as people as people that could be you know talked to with a, and and you know something could be reached through diplomacy in other words so that's something that gets forgotten immediately we want we you know the the the, the war drums start beating uh, and that's always the, the solution is is intervention on the part of either the military uh, directly through the United States or through NATO so that's that's kind of my two cents on on that thus far. Sibyl, well, tell us what you think. Sure. <laughs> well, I think a lot of posturing is going on on both sides, while both sides know exactly how this game is going to end. Because uh, historically, Crimea has been in this situation for a long time. They have, they have always, there has always been this kind of an invisible, divisive line there between Crimea region and the rest of Ukraine, if you look at Ukraine. And, and uh, I predict that it's going to end up with Crimea getting separated from, from Ukraine and both parties after all the posturing saying, okay, now everything is fine. And, and I, I want to approach this from the Russian people's perspective because I think they're in a pretty screwed up situation as well in terms of being given information in Russia as we are here in the United States as well. Because, uh, again, I, I want us to take a look at the last, let's say, 17, 18 years, okay? We basically engaged in similar games with Eastern Europe. I mean, we chopped and divided Serbia, we had Albania and Kosovo and Bosnia. We brought in Mujahideen from across the Middle East into Eastern Europe and basically tore apart and divided those nations. We broke up all those countries just the way that's going to happen with Ukraine. And guess really what happened with Russia? What did Russia really do? I mean, they did have some posturing there, but U.S. and NATO, they had complete free hand going in there and taking care of Eastern Europe and taking over the Eastern Europe. And guess what happened next? We have started putting all our bases there. I mean, name a country in Eastern Europe today that is not a NATO base. Can you think of any? I mean, take a look at it. Romania, Poland. And so that's what happened. And we saw nothing from Russia. You know, uh, zero, silch. And then move forward, fast forward to the past, I would say, 15, 16 years. We started meddling and positioning ourselves, and by we, <laughs> us, I mean the United States and NATO, in all over Central Asia and Caucasus. Azerbaijan, candidate NATO member, okay? 
with all our troops actually there already, with NATO troops there, they have been training them, and this started in 2002. Georgia, NATO candidate, take a look at the proximity of these nations, these ex-Soviet blocs, to Russia. What has Russia done in face of all these bases coming right in its backyard? Really, what has it done? Until recently, we had Kyrgyzstan, we had the Manus Air Base. So Kyrgyzstan kicked us out, and we were not really unhappy with it because Kyrgyzstan lost its importance. Now we have Georgia, we have Azerbaijan, we are talking about Estonia, we are talking about Lithuania. Uh, I think what Russia has had for the past couple of decades since the Soviets fall, they haven't had real nationalist presidents. They have had presidents and, and leaders that are... They are good at posturing, like Putin with Syria and everything. Well, Putin has to do this to a certain degree, the posturing. Otherwise, Putin won't stay in this position. But is Putin a real Russian nationalist? Is he a Russian nationalist president? I would say absolutely not. And the guy before Putin? Absolutely not. Yeltsin? Are you kidding me? Just the other day, I was reading this article again. Somebody wrote it in Russia, and it had to do with the net worth of Putin, that they were putting it somewhere between $250 million and $500 million. And supposedly, all these assets, his money, and this is Putin's, is outside Russia. Well, while I was working with the FBI through some of the targets we had, there were a lot of discussions and intelligence exchange that had to do with a lot of assets that actually even at that time Putin had in Cyprus, the Greek site Cyprus. Well, what is this? Greece is not NATO? So you're looking at Russia being ran by people who really don't have that real Russian nationalist uh, mental attitude or, or, or the feelings or the belief, they are not idea, you know, idealists. They are not the Russian idealists. Because of that, I kind of shrug off this entire talk of Cold War. And I know that both parties know the end game, and that's being Putin and also EU, NATO, and the United States. Crimea, eventually, within the next few months, is going to be separated, just as we saw happening when we had Yugoslavia and Bulgaristan disappearing and getting into these little chunks and pieces. So that's exactly what we are seeing, and that, that's, that's how I view the entire situation that we are seeing. I'd like to ask um, each of the panelists just to critique the United States in this episode, because I think that the uh, the shift last August when Obama threatened military action against Syria and took us to the brink of war only to be rescued by Putin, uh, saved from himself is, is how I would describe it. Uh, and I think that Putin saw that as a tremendous weakness on the part of the United States. And Coupling that with the, the personal snub because Obama wouldn't attend the Olympics, and Obama said he was doing that because Ed Snowden is still in Moscow, uh, and perhaps over the, the gay issues. Um, but bottom line is I think that there's a combination of ego and, and personal peak plus the opportunism that was uh, really exposed in the, the way the U.S. mishandled that episode with Syria. 
James, you want to start? Well, I think there's something to what you're saying, but to be honest, I don't put a lot of trunk in the idea that this really does come down to the the interpersonal conflicts of people like Obama and Putin. I think this is part of a much, much broader agenda that has been playing out through administration after administration, as as Sibel was saying, for for at least a decade and a half. We've been watching this gradual encirclement of uh, Russia by NATO. And as, again, as Sibel pointed out, we haven't seen a lot of reaction from Russia, either geopolitically, economically, and in any real way to this. And that, again, remains the puzzling part. And this is something that Sibel and I addressed a number of times in in our Gladio B series and some of our other talks, where we know that Russia is well aware of the fact that NATO Gladio has been operating on their doorstep for, for a very long time now and continues to, to threaten with these uh, uh, staged and, and, and prov- prov- provoked uh, terror attacks. And yet, although presumably they do have the goods on this, have still not come out with the, the, uh, the, the produce the goods to, to show that this is happening. And it really does raise the question of why? What is going on here? Why do they hold back? And I think one of the answers to that question that at least makes uh, uh, some plausible sense is that the war on terror narrative and all of this, again, serves Russian interests uh, in the same way that it serves interests at home, so that Obama can can use the uh, the national security threat to uh, to to implement whatever type of agenda he's looking for, in the same way that Russia can use the national security threat, and Putin can parade on the the victims of various terror attacks, including the ones that he, if not staged, at least uh, certainly um, uh, looked the other way when they happened back when he was coming into office. Back in 1999 with the Moscow apartment building bombings, which again, I think is a very, very blatant false flag event that needs to be looked into. So I, again, I think that uh, rather than looking at these individual leaders, I think what we need to do is examine the geopolitical and economic interests behind them. And uh, and again, I, 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 I will have to side with Sibel on this. I, I, I do see the, the propaganda war framing this as the new Cold War and insofar as that is the new frame for what's going on, I think that that will play itself out in reality. Um, I think there will be that, uh, that, that tension. Everything will be framed within that from now on. But I really do question to what extent these people are not, if not exactly on the same side, at least not exactly on opposite sides. They're using the same strategies and the same types of terror campaigns and the like to produce the same results in their, in their populations. So I'm, I'm quite skeptical about the way this is all being framed and, and where it's heading from here and again that's why i i want to warn about the uh, the the either or mentality that comes along with these types of conflicts yeah that's a very good point the false choices are often uh you know just presented to distract you from a whole range of other possibilities and uh it's it's quite effective there's no doubt about it guillermo yeah, well, I guess just to add to that, I mean, I, I know what you're saying as far as uh, what this appears like on the surface uh, with regard to this new Cold War. I've, I've read commentaries like this uh, in the press, uh, specifically regarding Snowden, because you, you, you brought him up, Peter. Uh, you know, this was uh, supposed to be you know, Putin's great uh, chess piece that he was able to claim in, 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 uh, in providing uh, Snowden asylum. He was able to claim this uh, politically as a great uh, victory and sort of, you know, throw that in the face of the United States. And, of course, Syria is another one of those things that, that superficially, at least, uh, could be used in that same way. I think you're on to something, though, James. That's very interesting, and it's, it's giving me at least some, some pause for thought, uh, the idea that this global war on terror meme benefits not just the United States, but countries like Russia as well. 
uh, that, again, appear to be diametrically opposed, but are they really? <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, again, it's given me a lot, to, a lot to think about, but other than that, I really don't know much, much else to, what else to offer at the moment regarding that uh, specifically. Sabelle? As I said a few months ago, seven, eight months ago, I said with Syria, well, the only thing we are seeing here is a pause. The only thing we are seeing. It has been placed on pause, and it's going to restart again. It, it's not that, okay, permanently, hands off, Russia won, Putin got his way. No, not at all. And if you look at the latest bill that was passed, the fact that we just sent tanks to the rebels, the fact that it's heating up again between uh, the situation between Turkey and Syria, which is with Turkey, we are talking about NATO and U.S., of course, green light and, and, and the leading from the back. We are seeing that we are going back again with, with Syria. Um, and, and again, uh, James really articulated all those points very, very well, and, and we are totally uh, in agreement on that. And again, I want to go back to the Russian side and say, well, one of the things that the Russians are experiencing here is, is the neutered Russia. I mean, truly, it has been the neutered Russia. And uh, I am trying to keep up and follow up the news on the other factions within Russia, whether the, you know, the, the uh, ultra-nationalists or, or even the moderate nationalists in Russia. How do they really view this? Seeing themselves as a nation sitting there and they have been really nonstop consistently being encircled and encircled and encircled. I mean, think about it. We had that brief episode of what, six, seven days war between Georgia and Abkhazia. And Georgia is basically almost there with being, a, you know, formally, officially, even though unofficially it has been part of NATO, really, uh, become a NATO member. And as I, you know, talked about it again uh, last time we talked about this uh, with Azerbaijan and what's happening with Azerbaijan. So the circle is really closing in and we really don't see anything in Russia. And of course, uh, the other thing with the pause, and I would say, had to do with some of the discontent here domestically in the United States on the issue of Syria. You know, it was pretty quick with Libya. It was like, boom, 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 it was done. I mean, there was not even enough time for people to react, whether globally or here in, in the United States. Uh, but with Syria, we started seeing a little bit more of dissent here that was vocal and talking about false flag attacks possibility, questioning all these issues of chemical attacks. And, and you know how it is when Hollywood starts making too many movies on the same topic? They say, you know what? We saturated the market. We need to come up with something new. I think the uh, establishment, the shadow government, the real deep state in the United States, the global deep states, they feel like they have played this Al-Qaeda card for too long. It's not... I mean, you kind of build immunity to it to a certain degree, as we saw with Syria. You know, people are not as easily, you know, getting it bought into to this whole concept. And it's getting becoming kind of an old factor, the tool that being played. So why not pause it and bring in the communism and Russia and Putin? And we have all these unbelievable poster-like pictures of Putin squinting and looking at the camera and there is Obama being tough and and revive that mentality in the US saying, yeah, you know, we're gonna stand up. Those bad Russians are after us again and and we we are the superpower. And guess what? You know, for the majority of the Americans, unfortunately, it has been working. 
And and it's amazing they had these surveys as part of the surveys that most of the people who are really talking big on being against Russia and everything are people who can't even point out where the hell Ukraine is on the map. <laughs> they don't know anything about Ukraine, where it is on the map, what is the history of the people in Crimea, okay, how that is a little bit different than the rest of Ukraine, you know, Eastern Ukraine versus the rest of Ukraine. And you get to see those people, and that is the playback of what it was during the Cold War. It's the ideology, and maybe part of it, you may agree or disagree, is the psychology of the masses. We love to have heroes, you know, and but we also love to have antagonists and, and enemies. That gets us going, you know, nothing to revive that nationalistic feeling, <laughs> like, like, big, bad, evil enemy, and Al-Qaeda started kind of fading away, man. It was not really uh, effective anymore. So why not bring Putin and old Russia back and sit back and watch people just fall for it, you know, dumbly fall for it and, and, and get energized. We are now energized again with that animosity, with that competitive streak. We, us against them, the big, bad ex-communist Russians <laughs> with $300 million in, a, in, in bank accounts in, in Western countries. <laughs> USA, USA, right. Imagine a big number one foam finger right there. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that really did, did strike a chord with me, the idea of this nationalist of fervor. Uh, war is the health of the state, right? And you can't have a war without an enemy to fight. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious. I, want, I wanted to ask you guys a question, actually. I'm curious about how each of you would respond to the criticism that uh, has been out, you know, circulates out there on the interwebs. Uh, we, we, we touched on this earlier a little bit, the idea that it's not either or, it's not this false dichotomy of, you know, good guy or bad guy. It's, it's much more complicated than that. The world isn't black and white. It's, it's shades of gray. Uh, and there are certainly, uh, you know, for, for sure, there's dictators all over the world that deserve to be uh, deposed. Uh, I just feel like the U.S. shouldn't be involved at all, you know, as a non-interventionist or whatever. Um, but uh, the, this, this, is, this I've seen out there, though, that if, if, if you don't sufficiently, again, if you don't sufficiently criticize the governments of, for example, uh, Russia or the government of Ukraine or the government of Venezuela, for example, then you're an apologist for these regimes and you must, you know, be pre, uh, pro whatever, you know, regime is in, is in power. Um, but see, I mean, me personally, and I'd imagine, James, you'd have a different perspective on this because I, me personally, I sort of feel like uh, I, I, I sort of see as a, as a duty almost to criticize my, my own government in a way since, you know, this is where my tax dollars go. And we're, I'm, I'm paying for this after all. This is all happening in, in my name and in, in our name, so to speak. Uh, and, and we're, in fact, paying for it quite, li quite literally. Um, and, and in fact, uh, uh, John Whitehead wrote a commentary piece on this. It's not directly related, but he kind of touched on these same themes about, you know, why are we paying for this stuff? Why do we keep paying for the surveillance state, for the national security state? And just kind of it serves as a good reminder that we are indeed uh, doing just that. But um, I am curious about how each of you would respond to that bit of criticism that, that you know, that we don't sufficiently criticize other governments and, and focus on, instead on the United States. And as I said, you know, Peter, Sabel, and I are all on the States, but James, you are in Japan, a Canadian no less, <laughs> living in Japan. So I'd imagine you have a, a different perspective on that. I suppose I do. And uh, and although you you, you say that I, I might not agree with that, in fact, I do agree with what you're saying, because I think our moral responsibility uh, starts and, and maybe not ends, but at any rate, it largely contains the area 
that overlaps our area of ability to do something about this. And it, ex you're exactly right. I mean, if, if you are an American taxpayer funding the American war machine, then I think your first obligation is to, to be responsible for where that money is going and what's happening uh, to it and with it. Um, that's, that's the moral responsibility of someone in, in the United States. So I do agree with that principle. Um, and and uh, that's exactly why uh, in this age of the American empire, the overarching American empire, whose military umbrella, of course, not only encompasses my home country of Canada, but now my adopted country of Japan, that is why I spend a lot of time focusing on the American empire and its uh, its claws that are reaching into every corner of the globe. Um, and, and deservedly so. I mean, it is certainly a, a regime that needs to be uh, held to account but uh, I, I think my critique with regards to the either-or trap is beyond that analysis, because I think once people understand that, that, yes, you're going to have people in the United States, of course there are the people who rally around the flag, and then there are the people who resist that and will, will critique the U.S. government. But again, both sides of that are playing into the same, the same dichotomy. And, and I, that's not to say that we shouldn't be criticizing the U.S. government and what it's doing. It's not to be saying that we shouldn't spend all of our time or most of our time or the majority of our time or more of our time criticizing the other side of that debate. It's just to, to understand that when critiquing um, the United States, we're not doing so in a way that implies that the other side is right. And that might be more philosophical than it is practical. And that's <laughs> right. why I understand there are a lot of people who have problems with this analysis and why there is, I, I've gotten some kickback from people who, who say, well, what are you talking about? America is clearly the aggressor here. And, and I agree. Again, America is, uh, and, the United, and the NATO generally, is sort of the aggressor in the Ukrainian situation. And, and I do agree with that principle. But again, it does not make Putin an angel. And I am just very, very concerned about the way this can turn into a conflict um, that it doesn't have to be. And uh, again, that's all very theoretical and philosophical. So I will turn it over to Peter, who hasn't spoken very much himself on this, and get his get his opinion well, on this. Where where do you stand on this, uh, Peter? Well, Guillermo, what, what you're touching on is what I consider to be the way um, policy and issues like this, conflicts, are reduced to cartoon levels. Mm. And I take it back to uh, Poppy Bush and his grand invasion of Panama. And, you know, he first worked over the American public to demonize uh, Manuel, uh, what was his name? <laughs> Noriega. Manuel Noriega. See, we forget these cartoon guys. <laughs> uh, and, and then, of course, with Operation Desert Storm, he intentionally mispronounced Saddam. Uh, and and tried to turn him into this big super evil character, and so this is something that I think uh, their market research has shown the American people are pretty easy to buffalo with, uh, and you create these extreme images of of good and bad, and you demonize your opponent, uh, you know, with everything from halitosis to uh, false claims of nuclear biological weapons uh, to the point where people, it, it, it triggers that nationalist response. Well, we're the good guys. Everything we do is right. And this surfaced, you know, shortly after Yanukovych was deposed. And the meme that was attributed to uh, Angela Merkel that was then uh, uh, exaggerated and hyped in the American media was that uh, Putin is crazy and that, you know, he's in a different orbit or on a different planet. 
And there are a lot of negative things that you can uh, correctly say about Vladimir Putin, but I don't think he's crazy. I, I think he's a very smart and calculating man. And so this was just another example to me of using this kind of cartoon approach to really uh, create these monsters that the public would want to tilt at. Well, actually, one of the things that, that, that one of the points that Yermo's question uh, raised for me, brought up, which was, I think it's a very good point, uh, it's not exactly on the same uh, channel of the thoughts that we have been discussing, but when it comes to the dollars and money and the taxpayers, etc., I want to point out to two other facts here at play. Number one, even though it has been on the back pages, uh, I, I do the aggregated news at Boiling Frogs Post, NATO for the past few days has been screaming and saying they have been suffering budget-wise. And here what's happening with Ukraine and Russia shows how badly they need to supplement NATO's budget and increase it and expand it. And with all the tension going on, I believe they're going to sail through that too. Because again, with NATO as well, after the fall of the Soviet Union, you had the rest of the NATO member nations saying, well, you know what, Cold War is over. So, and with the, all the austerity and everything happening all over Europe, it was kind of a sticking point issue with the Europeans of increasing NATO's budget. But now you just watch and see how quickly they're going to be able to raise their budget, NATO, without having much, you know, screaming or the, or the dissent from the public. Now, staying back here in the United States, I talked about the pause on Syria. There is another issue we have had a pause on, and that is the debt ceiling, you know, and all this, our own uh, austerity. We are going to cut on defense. Look at Pentagon's expand expenditure, this mammoth that is getting so big and fat. Guess what? The deadline is approaching for debt ceiling, okay? And one of the things that's going to happen with the current hyping up of the tension with Russia, the revival of Cold War mentality, you are not going to see much argument in the United States Congress on debt ceiling and especially as it applies on expenditure, on intelligence, and on Pentagon. Take a look at Google News and put the keywords in there and put budget, intelligence budget, and the defense budget, and you're going to see how they are linking the current situation and tension and everything that is happening, the posturing, to, oh, have we become too weak as defense? I read another headlines, I didn't read the entire article talking about isn't it time to expand the CIA and have them refocus on their espionage activities and with what, what's happening in Russia because CIA has become too small or weak in terms of its own espionage activities against Russian. So what you're going to see with all this is next time when it comes up, which is going to come up, all the negotiations and discussions in Congress with the debt ceiling and budget and cutting the defense and intelligence, you're not going to hear a peep from any of the representatives. Nobody's going to dare to be 
not nationalistic and American during this tough, scary time against Russia, not to raise the debt ceiling and not to expand this already ginormous Pentagon further, because that's another great externality, positive externality that, that is providing the situation, the posturing, the exaggeration with, with Russia is what's going to happen domestically here because our economy sucks, okay? <laughs> and that itself has become a sticking point. I know the Tea Party has been using it. Libertarians, they have been using it. People have been screaming. Unemployment hasn't really recovered that much. And having this, as it did with Cold War for 40 years, 50 years, no matter how much you spend, it's not enough, dude. Spend more. And we, if we are real Americans, if we are proud of our flag, we're going to say, what do you mean you're going to increase it by $5 billion? Make that 50 okay? There is that big, big bad, evil Russians there. So that's another thing we're going to see. And as taxpayer, Guillermo, I'm very concerned yeah. Well, ju that. just to back you up on that point, I saw a tweet from our old friend NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen the other day saying exactly that now is the time to in start increasing the nato budget again and uh and so i replied with something to the effect of you bloodletting psychopath or something like that <laughs> which received a lot of retweets thankfully so um for you. Exactly. yeah no yeah. but uh, but uh, i think you're exactly right we can see this coming and uh and we've been experiencing it here in the asia pacific region for a while now with the new threat of the chinese boogeyman and uh, that being the asia pacific pivot and the increase in military budgets here now there's another th uh, front on this uh, new Cold War, as it's being termed. Uh, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to hijack this conversation and steer it towards our other topic of uh, Syria and uh, the, uh, the uh, Seymour Hirsch article in the London Review of Books that came out recently, because I'm actually have to get running along to another interview at the quarter past the hour. So I just wanted to turn to this uh, this issue of Seymour Hersh's new article. And for people who haven't seen it, it is at uh, lrb.co.uk, the red line and the rat line, and basically talking about the Syrian chemical weapons attack in Ghouta last year and and the uh, intelligence that, uh, that was being formed around that, that was trying to put the blame on uh, on Assad, but it, that tended to backfire, and that's why the whole operation to bomb Syria was called off. For people who don't know, this is basically a continuation of uh, Seymour's reporting, uh, Hirsch's reporting, I shouldn't be on a first-name basis with someone <laughs> I don't know, I suppose, with Hirsch's reporting um, uh, in the LRB back in December, and basically this is just a continuation of that with more behind-the-scenes details, and of course, like every other Seymour Hirsch article, it's based on insider accounts of anonymous intelligence officials and people who are involved in these conversations, so take it for what it's worth. And I want to, in fact, specifically to ask Sibel's um, opinion on what it's worth, because I know you've you've met, uh, talked to Seymour in person and you know him um, to a certain extent. And, in, you know, here he is writing this, this article now, uh, months and months and months and months and months after the incident and months and months and months after we've been talking about this to come out with the behind-the-scenes details of, for example, Erdogan's visit to uh, to the White House last year and what that was all about and what uh, inf uh, officials were saying. Um, and, in fact, coming out exactly to confirm what you and I were talking about in our conversation in January about Erdogan and his reverse engineering. And he quotes, for example, one intelligence official as saying that uh, during by the end of 2012, Erdogan was pissed uh, and felt that he was left hanging on the vine. It was his money, and the cutoff was seen as a betrayal, basically the cutoff uh, of the uh, the Syrian invasion plans and, and everything. So 
Erdogan felt like he was holding the bag, so he wanted to to stage something to get back into it. So it puts all this blame on 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 what Erdogan was doing and in, in engineering this uh, chemical weapons attack. Very interesting. Very interesting. This is coming out now in the way that it is from a, a source who clearly has a lot of. Uh, sources on the inside of the White House and intelligence officials and, and people who want to leak this to him for s- their own specific reasons. Uh, Sabelle, why is Seymour Hirsch coming out with this now, um, six years into the Obama administration, who he has not criticized at all, really substantively so far? And and that's a good way of starting this question, because we have always talked about the importance of context and history it always comes up during our roundtable, how it is with media. They never provide that. And it's so important to quickly provide that context, okay? Because I wrote several articles, uh, in a way, uh, politely, which is not my usual uh, modus operandi. Politely, I had been criticizing Seymour Hirsch. And one of, in my, one of my articles, I went back and I counted his novella-like articles during the Bush administration. And during this time, he also wrote an entire book, a very thick book. He wrote for New Yorker 16 articles during the Bush administrations. And on average, each one of these articles were 10 pages long, single space, tiny little fonts <laughs> at New Yorker. And then uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, I went and I counted during the Obama administration, he had won, and it had nothing to do with any of uh, Obama administration's wars and, and black ops, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so, and, and during the Obama administration, we have had so much happening. You know, we had Libya, and where was Seymour Hirsch? Absent. <laughs> and we had Egypt happening. Where was Seymour Hirsch? Absent. We have had, you know, the Syria situation, we've, we've had that since 2011. In fact, Boiling Frog's Post was one of the first sites that reported Americans, NATO, and U.S. troops training the rebels in southern Turkey using the U.S. base in southern, southern Turkey, Injerlik base in Adana. And this is November, okay? This is October, November 2011. Where was Seymour Hirsch? Nowhere to be seen. NDAA, you name it. He has been absent very conveniently because we have had a Democrat president. And because New Yorker has been very happy to say, we give all your salary, just shut up, go away, have a vacation. Once we have the Republican come back and just, you know, start where you left off. Okay. Now I know him. He, he's been a friend uh, as a person. I respect him. I like him. But as a journalist, he is a highly biased, highly partisan person, which is, again, a norm with, with mainstream media because he's been working for The New Yorker, and all you have to do is look at The New Yorker. As far as this article is concerned, uh, it, it, it is not like lots of misleading stuff. No, it's a decent article. There are some really good points in these articles, and I wouldn't be surprised, as we have discussed it, even we were talking about the fact that probably that was a false flag operation with this Sarin case with Syria and most likely Turkey was going to be the country that was going to come up with this saying oh here it is be proved in fact even after the international community ruled out uh, Assad as the source and Assad regimes as the source of this chemical operations Turkey said we don't accept that we're going to have our own labs okay we're you know we're going to have our own labs examine it <laughs> And most likely, we're going to arrive at a different conclusion. So I don't even disagree with that hypothesis theory that most likely, you know, Turkey was behind this. It was made up. 
But what Seymour Hersh has done here is he has put a lot of this on Turkey and Erdogan, and especially now, especially since for the past uh, six months to a year, U.S. has been totally uh, up the propaganda against Erdogan. And this is Fethullah Gulen, the imam with the CIA operation trying to oust him. And, the, and of course, the rift between Erdogan's uh, administration and Fethullah Gulen. So, and, and they did their best. And this is the neocons. This is the Israel lobby. This is the Obama administration with the mainstream media here in the United States talking about, you know, how he's become unpopular. And guess what? The results came back, the elections results, and the party didn't even lose less than 2% popularity relative to compared to two years and four years and six years before with the elections. So for Seymour Hersh to come right at this point to write this, to put all this beef and the focus on Erdogan and on Turkey, yet Seymour Hersh did not talk about, and despite all his high-level U.S. military sources and U.S. intelligence sources, he's not talking about how in 2011 it was NATO and U.S. training the rebels there. It was U.S. and it has been U.S. and NATO directing all this scenario using Turkey because Turkey is the neighbor and it's right there across the border against the Assad administration and just pay, making this. You can take all these different cherry pick all sorts of facts, throw in a few hypotheses and arrive at any conclusion you want to arrive. And with Seymour Hersh, in this case, it's even more pathetic. There is no conclusion. He's saying probably, most likely, possibly, maybe Erdogan and Turks were setting this up as false flag. Well, we talked about that. We talked about that. This is highly possible. Sure. So what's the deal? But what it has achieved, this article, is what Israel and what the neocons, with all their neocon-related media publications, have been doing against Erdogan administration, the current administration, the democratically elected administration in Turkey, and he is echoing the Israelis, the Zionists, the, the, the neocons, and there is no difference between the tone of, you know, uh, Seymour Hersh's article and, let's say, some of the, uh, the neocon Zionists that we have been talking about who have been writing at Washington Post and New York Times against Turkey and Turkey and Syria. Who is the director and the producer of all these situations with Syria? It's been the United States of America. Look, Obama is sending all these tanks now to the, to the rebels to come and say this is some sort of a kind of, and put it under Seymour Hersh's terms, uh, independent move by Erdogan and Turkey, that is really hypocritical. And considering the situation the United States put Turkey in, because U.S. used Turkey, did all the stuff, and of course with Putin, and we talked about that, everything that, that happened, United States decided to put a pause on Syria. Guess what? Who left out there really naked? It was Turkey. It's like, you caused the situation. Now we are really big time enemies, Assad uh, regime and the Erdogan administration, Turkish government. And, and, and with all the refugees that are coming to Turkey, all the chaos that is happening along the borders. Now you said you decided to put a pause. Well, what are we going to do? So Erdogan has been saying, heck with you. We're going to do some of the stuff ourselves. Well, obviously, Obama is saying, not so fast, we are doing it too, let's do it all together. So Thank it's you. back on the game. The Syria game is warming up and it's back on the game. 
Well, Anyone I have else? a couple of things. <laughs> One is that uh, I share Sabelle's frustration with Cy Hirsch, and I canceled my subscription to The New Yorker uh, a couple of years ago because they weren't publishing him anymore. I miss the cartoons. Uh, <laughs> What I will say is that his article did uh, confirm some important things that we could only speculate about before. Uh, our friend Pepe Escobar was the first to relate the Benghazi episode to gun running of Libyan arms into Syria. And Hirsch advances that to uh, the recipient party being uh, al-Nusra Front, which, of course, is widely reported as al-Qaeda-linked in, in the American media. The other piece, I think, that um, while we, we can quibble with some of the uh, uh, unsourced information that Hirsch published, I think that the bottom line is it destroys the credibility of Obama and Kerry in their assertions last August. Uh, that we know, we know this, we know that, we know, no, no. And they were lying. And that, that part is, is extremely clear. Now, also uh, sourced through Pepe Escobar, my leading uh, suspect for the supplier of the uh, uh, ingredients for the crude chemical weapon that apparently was used in Gouda was Bandar uh, and the Saudis. So in some ways, uh, Hirsch appears to be uh, providing some exculpatory information regarding at least a direct Saudi role uh, in the use of chemical weapons in Syria. But I also think that the, the benefit of this story is to the extent that Americans become aware of it, and, and that's another problem, is that because it was published in London, there are blog articles about it, but very little has surfaced uh, in, in the corporate media, at least to my knowledge. Uh, but to the extent that people know about it, I think that it'll give uh, further pause to any aggressive American moves in Syria. And I can only regard that as beneficial. Uh, well, uh, not much left to say on this, but I think what, I, what I'll add is that... Um, uh, yeah, I had a similar uh, reaction to the article uh, that you did, Peter, initially. Uh, I sort of saw it as, as a confirmation of many of the suspicions uh, that were already um, circulating that, that you know, people have talked about. Uh, but I think you, you made a good point, James, that much of the confirmation is done uh, through anonymous sources. So that's as good as, as speculation, really, if you're just going to cite anonymous sources. Um, I also, I'll also point out that for anyone who's coming at the information for the first time or, or who's reading about the, the, this rat line and, and, and all this stuff for the very first time uh, and uh, is, is, is citing the, the Seymour Hirsch article uh, to do so, I'll just point out what uh, my pal Danny Benavides pointed out on Traces of Reality in the latest uh, Terranoia update uh, that uh, Tony Cartolucci wrote about this first uh, on Land Destroyer, uh, NATO using Al-Qaeda rat lines to flood Syria with foreign terrorists back in October of 2012. So just wanted to throw that out there as evidence that really little of this is anything new. And let me just clarify my position there on the anonymous sources. It's not so much that I disbelieve what those sources are saying in the article, because um, I mean, I, I'm sure Hirsch does have those types of contacts. But my point is more to the, the, to the effect that these sources are 
allowed to say these types of things at a certain time that's strategically to the benefit of one or another party within the, the sort of factions of government. So I, I think that, you know, why is this coming out now um, at this particular point? And I think that's in line with Sibel's uh, overall point that this is a, a, the attempt to demonize Erdogan at this, at this particular time. And, and that, that's, pardon me, but that's the strategic leak that propels the, the Hirsch article which is that the U.S. is brushing back Erdogan. Right. And, and, and I want to add one thing, and this has not really nothing to do with Syria or Turkey, and that boils down to the discussion of the real journalism, pseudo-journalism, somewhere in between journalism that we have been having here. Tony Cartolucci, you mentioned, I have been following him. I really like his writings. He's been a great analyst. And as I said, Boiling Frog's Post broke the story on the Syria in 2011. And uh, James uh, interviewed some sources, including a source from Syria. So you're looking at all these independent, alternative, uh, small journalists who have been doing all this reporting on Syria. And uh, even our source was attacked. Well, how do we establish that much credibility, even though he was proved to be absolutely solid with what he provided to us? So we have gotten much more than after at the end of this whole stage with Syria doing nothing for six years. Seymour Hirsch comes back and writes a six page article saying, dude, where have you been? Okay, (laughs) number one. Number two, with all your resources, with all your contacts, you came up with this. A, it's old story, even though it confirms some of the stuff. B, we have had all these independent journalists putting all the stuff forward. And so it just shows you that independent media and some of the real, true independent journalists are doing, you know, work superior to those formerly Pulitzer-winning uh, people. And and for some of them, I would say, you know, instead of having taking these six, eight years absence, either say I have reached senility stage and goddamn retire and go away <laughs> and enjoy all the money you've made from all the stuff. Good for you. You have done some great work. You're a good friend. I like you. I have enjoyed all our, you know, uh, gatherings and everything. But just with the dignity, say, you know what? I'm retiring. I'm 75. And I just make myself look so dumb and, and without integrity, going away and taking vacation for eight years when it's a Demo- Democrat becoming a president. And I'm not for Simon Hirsch, you know, Seymour Hirsch is for everyone. Just get the hell out of the industry, okay? Go enjoy your money and don't come back. Or if you want to be a journalist and if you want to look like you are someone or if you want to show that you are someone who deserves to be recognized as a great journalist, then do the journalist like a goddamn journalist does, regardless who is in the office, okay? Do your research, write those novella, great articles that you wrote during the Bush administration. I didn't disagree with a single article he wrote. They were fantastic. I was saying hooray to him. But guess what? I mean, it really lowers that makes a person stinky to come and take a six years vacation. So it's time for Seymour Hirsch, I believe, and I hope if he's listening to it, he will take a cue, retire, Go play tennis. He loves playing tennis. And just go away, okay? And, and put your Pulitzers over there on the wall, but go away. But don't do these paid vacation by New Yorker because that's not journalism. And that's my last word on this. So, Bill, don't, don't hold back. Note. Tell us what you really feel. Oh, no, I won't. No, no worries. <laughs> on that note, our thanks to Sibel Edmonds, James Corbett, Guillermo Jimenez, and I'm Peter B. Collins. Thanks for joining us for the Boiling Frogs Post Roundtable.